story of Noah. You know this one. You grew up in, if you, if you grew up in church, you've heard that story a hundred times. I remember um, the first time that I listened to it and I was paying attention though. Uh, I was reading my Bible in the basement of the church office where I used to live. And I was reading in the message version and this version of the Bible just tries to say everything very straight. And it said, the sons of God came and had sex with the daughters of women and gave birth to the Nephilim, which were giants. <laughs> and I was like, no, this is the Noah story, man. You got this wrong. You paraphrase this way off. That doesn't happen. So, so I pulled out my Bible software that I had for college and I started like looking at this because I'm like, I want to know. I enjoy weird stories in the Bible. This one sounds really weird. What even is a son of God in the first place? So I'm trying to do the research, trying to figure it out, and I get very scholarly answers that I was expecting. All these scholars, I was like, oh, so men at that time were just called sons of God, and they had relations with the daughters of men. I'm like, I understand that, you know, <laughs> culturally things were more sexist back then, but like, why would you say it that way? Why would not you just say men had sex with women? And why, if it's men having sex with women, are they giving birth to giants? Like, this doesn't make any sense. You're, it just feels off. But this was a, a way of thinking that they came up with uh, much later. It'd be like probably a few hundred years into the A.D. So this started being taught because these Christians were like, that's too weird. No one's going to listen to that. But... It's interwoven throughout the Old Testament. So when you actually start to pay attention to this, when you look at the term sons of God, bini Elohim, throughout the Old Testament, this is a spiritual being. They show up as basically um, any kind of spiritual being that God has created can be called a son of God because they're these spiritual beings who work for God. They're his, you know, spiritual children, if you will. There's different kinds of sons of God. Some of them, the Bible paints them as um, upper level spiritual beings who have power and authority over countries. This would be the false gods that you find throughout um, uh, the Bible. The Bible actually says, like, these false gods are not God. There's only one God. But all these false gods are not nothing. The Bible calls them demons, it calls them the false gods, whatever. Anyways, to serve these false gods is to serve other beings God has created, given authority to, but these are not gods in the way that we think of gods. You have to understand, in ancient times in your Bible, anything that's a spiritual being could be called a god. Okay. Uh, for example, Samuel, you remember this weird story where... Um, Saul goes to the witch of Endor, not like Star Wars, but <laughs> ancient Endor. Saul goes to the witch of Endor. He's like, I, I need to, you know, talk to Samuel or whatever. When Samuel pops up, the witch says, I see a God. And it's Samuel. Is Samuel a God? No. But in biblical ancient times, a spiritual being can go by little g God. They're nothing like the one true God. Just to be a spiritual being is to be a little g-god. So anyways, sons of gods, you could call angels, you could call watchers is sometimes what they're called. Uh, they show up all throughout the Bible, and it means that they're a spiritual being. So what the Bible is actually saying in Noah's time is part of the reason that the world got so bad that it had to be flooded was that angels came down out of heaven, saw that women were beautiful, 
decided to procreate with them and give birth to a new kind of human being known as, in their time, the Nephilim, or as uh, many people just refer to them as, as giants. Giants. So this becomes a theme as to why the world is so bad that God has to flood it. Later, Jewish literature tried to think of what these giants would do, and they said that these giants, uh, that these angels who came down and took human wives, that they uh, taught us sorcery, witchcraft, astrology. Uh, It seems to imply that they were cannibals, just all kinds of any evil you could think of got attributed back to where did humans learn that from? War and all these kinds of things. Well, we learned it from these spiritual beings who betrayed God and stepped over the line to do things that they weren't supposed to do. Um, And then their children were these giants who now were um, living on earth and making things so bad that God had to flood it to remove the giants. So if you're like me, you're like, okay, the flood, that got rid of all the giants. We don't have to worry about them anymore. So the Nephilim, short-lived, not a problem. But if you go to Numbers, the Nephilim are still there. They just like reappear as though they've never been dealt with so far. Uh, I think part of the reason is, you know, a lot of times we look at Noah's flood as a worldwide flood. I, I would say it's more local. Again, they thought the earth was flat. When a flood gets as high as it did, you would think that it's wiped everything else out. But now that you know it's a globe, of course, you know there's more places that you probably could flee to escape. Whatever the case may be, somehow, in some way, these giants lived, or somehow, in some way, the other implication would be that they found a, they did it again later and, and created the same thing. I doubt that's the case, but whatever. That's the story the Bible tells. A few passages to show you. So Genesis 6, this is what I was just talking about. When men began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive And they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on earth in those days, and also afterward. See, the flood didn't wipe them out. And uh, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. So... These giants are now roaming the earth. They continue to show up throughout uh, the Bible. So here's where they reappear in numbers. Uh, they go to the, Israel goes to the promised land. They're about to take a land that God said, this is your land, I'm going to move you in. Moses sends out some spies to go check out the land. Let us know what we're into. You know, like we're about to take this land from these people. Let us know what you see on the other side. So Caleb and these other spies, they go to check it out. And here's what they say. The land through which we have gone in to spy it out is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people that we saw in it are of great height. And there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who came from the Nephilim. And we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers. And so we seemed to them. In other words, like we came across these giants and we just felt so tiny. This is what we're up against. God sending us into this land. Notice this, too. If you're just looking for the Nephilim, that's the only word you're searching your Bible to figure out where giants are. That's not their name anymore. They're the sons of Anak. So when the sons of Anak pop up in your Bible, now you're supposed to be thinking giants. Their name has evolved into a new kind of clan. You see Nephilim, you see the sons of Anak. It continues. Uh, They go and check it out again. 
And they say the people who dwell in the land are strong and the cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. And then they go on. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the Negev, the Hittites, the Jebusites, the Amorites dwell in the country, and the Canaanites dwell by the sea along the Jordan. These people who are big and strong, there seems to be implication here. It's not just with uh, the sons of Anak, but we see them in other parts of this country too that you're sending us into. Deuteronomy. And now we see names coming more. The Emim formerly lived there, a people great and many and tall as the Anakim. Okay, so now you don't just have Nephilim, Anakim, the sons of Anak, Anak, Kim. Now we also have the Emim. And they are also like the Rephaim, which is another group of people who are like giants. But the Moabites call the Rephaim the Emim. So the Ammonites, though, the Rephaim are called Zemzumim by the... So anyways, you know when you're reading your Old Testament and you totally just stop listening because you keep saying like, oh, this clan, this clan, oh, so boring, I don't even care. If you're paying close attention, what you're reading is like this giant clan, this giant clan over here, these humans on this side and the humans over here, but then more giants over here and this race over here, which is humans, but mixed in with giants... The picture that the Bible is painting for you is that giants were not done away with in the flood, but giants are created from this this great sin that was so bad and so evil, and the giants were so evil, and these angels were so evil, that God felt he had to flood the earth. It even says that he regretted making humankind. They're falling into this trap of following evil too. Then he sees Noah, who's kind of righteous for his time, so maybe he won't wipe everyone out. Maybe this one kind of righteous guy can redeem humanity. And he doesn't do a great job, by the way, if you read the story. But nonetheless, all of these giants have continued on in some way to continue to be on the face of the earth. The story goes on. Amos, it was I who destroyed the Amorite before them, whose height was like the height of cedars which would, in their time, it'd be like me saying it's the height of the redwoods. That was just like the biggest trees that they were used to. Uh, so Amos says that. You see specific giants. Arba was Anak's dad, and then um, he had kids named Sashai, Ahamin, Talmai, and then there was Og, who you can tell is a giant because his bed was 13 feet by two and a half feet. Like the Bible's trying to imply, like, this isn't normal size, right? Like... These giants seem to be here. Uh, Joshua, here's where things get interesting. Uh, so God sends his people into this land to take it. It's, the, it's God's holy land. One of the things that's interesting is when you look at the places where we now noted where giants are, there are some times in holy war, because I know holy war is hard for any of us, hard for me, right? Because Jesus shows us that war is unacceptable and that we are to love our neighbors and our enemies. But when you look at the wars that happen in the ancient holy wars of the Old Testament, there are times where Israel is allowed to just go in and say, you guys need to leave, God has given us this land. There's no war that needs to happen, maybe just a forceful push. But the places in which they seem to have to wipe people out is the places in which giants have been known to be. Now that we've looked at the giant clans. So when we see holy war in the Bible, one of the things the Bible is trying to communicate is like the seed of the enemy, the seed of sin that is now 
taking over God's creation, these areas need to be removed. You even see them like they're in God's holy land, as though they know that God, this is God's land, and they're like trying to defend God from taking it. So this puts a little bit of a different spin on holy war in the Bible that a lot of times we don't pay attention to. Um, But as they um, are going to war, if you're familiar with the story, God's people get lazy with war. God told them, like, you need to drive all these people out or they are going to be a thorn in your side and you're going to worship their false gods and you're going to turn to their stuff and you're not going to follow me anymore. They get lazy. They don't chase everyone out. They don't finish what they were told to do. And here's what Joshua, at the end of the Holy Wars, uh, here's what Joshua says. There was none of the Anakim, remember, giants. There were none of the giant Anakim left in the land of the people of Israel. Only in Gaza, in Gath, and in Ashdod did some remain. They were supposed to get rid of all the giants, but some remain. Anybody remember what giants in Gath? Yeah, Goliath. I don't know about you, but I grew up just thinking Goliath was a strange character, a very tall man, (laughs) just in the middle of the Bible story. Who knows why there's a giant here? No, Goliath is connected to the entire story of giants. He's a part all the way back to Noah. Goliath is a descendant all the way from back then. And the only reason David has to go up against him is because years before, Joshua's conquest didn't finish getting rid of the giants. They're still present. A few of them are still present. And lo and behold, when you come across Goliath, he is anti-God, he's anti-Yahweh, and he wants to destroy God's people. He's waiting, you know, to have one of them come out and do battle with him. So you see, like, the story of all of his rebellion continue to live on. Goliath was either nine foot nine or six foot six. So for some of you who are trying to figure out how a woman would give birth to a 20 foot man, it's not the case. So giants, um, your Bibles are going to say that Goliath was nine foot nine inches. But we found older manuscripts more recently that are more official than the ones that you have in your Bible, believe it or not. That would say he was actually six foot six inches. Since those are older, we know that like the legend that grew to nine feet, nine inches was later. And that the more original reading is six foot six inches. This doesn't mean that all the six foot NBA players are Nephilim, okay, before you go there. (laughs) Because think about this. Goliath is wearing armor that's 126 pounds. And just the spear, uh, the tip of his spear is 15 pounds. I mean, to wield things like that. And to do it well without dragging it across the floor, right? You have to, there's got to be some other elements as to how to identify a giant. Yeah. In one of your slides, it was saying how they're stronger than other people. Yeah. And so when you look at the picture of giants that they're painting, it's not just like tall. Because I think, actually, I'm not sure, but I think the average height back then was even shorter than we are now. So like if you saw a six foot six person and you were anisized, You'd be like, <laughs> you'd be like giants. <laughs> yeah. So whatever the case may be, there had to be some kind of identifying feature when you came across a giant. I don't. I'm not saying giants are still around today. Uh, at least in the case of this Nephilim kind of idea. Um, 
but Goliath was one of them. And after they defeated Goliath, these stories weren't as popular, so you haven't heard them. But Ishbi Banab, David and his crew had to take out him, along with Saph or Sippai. There's two different books in the Bible that give that guy a different name. And then Goliath's brother, Lami, who had 12 fingers and 12 toes. So maybe that was a common, no, probably not, <laughs> common giant trait. But you have more giants. It's not until David where they're finally wiped out, where all this seed that's trying to destroy God and his people is finally wiped out. So here's another interesting factoid that some of you have heard me say before. Uh, Jewish literature believed that when you killed a Nephilim, when you killed an Anakim, when you killed a giant, these became demons. That their souls, you know, they're, they're born of heaven because of spiritual beings, but they're born of earth because they're earthly beings. Now they die. They're not necessarily bound anywhere, or at least the enemy doesn't leave them bound because they're a part of their team. Where do they go? The Jews would say, well, they became demons and they roam the earth and they still afflict us today. They're still anti-God. They still hate us. They still want us to suffer. They still want God to suffer. And so they go and roam the earth and afflict us in this way. So part of the picture that then gets painted in an interesting light is, you know, you've, you've got this battle continuing not just through um, the Old Testament, but now into the New Testament. They're still there afflicting. Giants are not the only kind of demons. Fallen angels can be classified as demons. The disembodied souls of giants can be classified as demons. The sons of God who fell can be classified as demons. The false gods can be classified as demons. If you are a spiritual being that turns against God, the general blanket statement that gets put on you is demon. That, that would be what you become. Um, but in this particular case, the Jews believe that when these giants died, souls didn't really necessarily belong anywhere, and so they continue to afflict us to today. And uh, it's just an interesting thing to kind of process when you're thinking through it. You know, I've cast out demons twice, once in Chicago and once in, um, in this building, actually. And when both of those moments happen, you know, like the great statement for me in this moment is I'm just watching, like they're afraid of Jesus. <laughs> they, you know, they, they might be mad that they're getting cast out or whatever, but you just keep saying like, Jesus, just come and show your love right now. Jesus, just come and do your way. Jesus is God. Jesus is King. And of all the things that you would expect a spiritual being in front of you to be afraid of, it's Jesus. I mean, they're trying to make you afraid. But as soon as you're talking about Jesus, they know that they can't stand. And so when I look at that, you know, it's just interesting to think, like, I don't know what's on the other end of this. But if it's a, if it's a spirit of a giant, <laughs> it's afraid of Jesus because they know that he has the power to cast them out, as he does in every scenario he comes across throughout the Gospels. If it's a fallen angel, then you're afraid of Jesus. Yeah. And some upper-level spiritual beings sometimes get involved there too and they're harder to cast out because they're much stronger but nonetheless they know that jesus wins and wins in the end and that they're doomed for the sins that they've created against god so uh it's just a 
interesting perspective that not only goes throughout your Old Testament, your New Testament, but even into today as you're continuing to do ministry. Um, as for those sons of God, those angels who sinned, who decided as a group that they were going to take human wives and create giants, they were uh, sent to more or less the abyss is kind of what it's called in the Bible. It's kind of like a spiritual prison. They're in chains they're in gloomy darkness is what the Bible would say. Uh, and they are stuck there until the end when they are then put into uh, proper justice more or less in Revelations, this lake of fire where all this evil will go so that the world can be made right again. Uh, but what's interesting is that, you know, we, we think of the Jewish literature because that's where we learn that these angels were put in chains, okay? That's Jewish literature called Enoch as well as some other books, Apocalypse of Abraham, I think, and, and some others. That's not in your Bible. But what is in your Bible is the understanding that this happened. Because if you go to First Peter, here's what Jesus does when he dies. If you're ever wondering, like, when Jesus was dead for three days before he rose back to life again, where was he during those three days? Here's what Peter says. It says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. So what Peter tells us is, like, those days when Jesus was dead and he was just a spirit in the spirit world, he went to those angels that sinned. It says that he went to those spirits. Angels fall under that term because they are spiritual beings. They're not human beings. It says that Jesus went up to these sons of God, these spirits who had created the Nephilim, and he proclaimed to them, in other words, he told them, like, yeah, justice is coming towards you. This sentence, you all thought you killed me on the cross. I'm coming right now to, to the spirit world and telling you to your face, you lost. <laughs> <laughs> and the justice is still ahead. The fact that you will be done away with, that's still ahead of you. And then he comes back to life. You know, I, I, just, oh, I love to picture that. I, I wrote that in my latest fiction book. I tried to gather the way it is, is that Jesus dies on the cross. Satan, who I wrote as a dragon, is just like celebrating. And he gets to this place where they're all chained up and like, we got you. And Jesus is like, did you? <laughs> and they're like, what do you mean? He's like, did you know that, that you didn't? And then he just suddenly like, vanishes like what's happening at which point i have have my jesus character's arm come through the dragon's stomach because the dragon ate him it's <laughs> <laughs> <was> like it's <laughs> <was> like alien <laughs> and then jesus pulls himself out and stomps on his head because that's an old prophet <laughs> anyways now you'll never read my book because i'd spoiled the ending but if you know the story of jesus <laughs> it was it's my favorite part in the book, though. It's just like... <laughs> <laughs> the dragon tries to, like... Uh, he blows fire in his stomach to try to cauterize him. <laughs> Anyways, where are we at? Okay. Uh, but it's allegory. But that's kind of what this is telling right here. Satan thought he won. The spirits thought they won. Then Jesus shows up and proclaims. 
This is a reference back to Enoch, because Enoch in that story, he would go to these spirits in prison, and these sons of God who sinned, they're like, please go tell God, like, we're sorry, (laughs) and maybe, you know, let us go. Enoch goes and tells God, and God's like, no, their sentence is final. So now Jesus is the second Enoch. He goes back to them again. He's like, the sentence is still final. Your sins will be dealt with. And that's where we're headed even on our Sunday service about Revelation, is ultimately everything that's wrong, whether it's spiritual or physical, is ultimately annihilated and done away with so that God can restore the earth and people and humanity back to everything it was meant to be in the beginning before Satan started to mess it all up. So that's really big picture view today, but few clarifications. I always need to make these because people hear me say things I didn't. There is only one God, okay? All other spiritual beings that could be classified as little G-gods were made by God, given power and authority to them. And then they decided rather than to serve God with that power and authority, they used it to afflict God, not that they can hurt him. Psalm 82 talks about God being in the courtroom of all the other gods and telling them that you're all doomed just like these spiritual beings were because you have chosen not to image me to the world but become evil and use your powers in corrupt ways. That's ultimately, again, where all this bad stuff, whether spiritual or physical, heads to. It's this removal of everything wrong so that everything may be right again. So, one God. Anyways, I was... <laughs> like to clarify. Okay. Uh, I do have a, like, 13-hour audiobook I wrote and recorded that gets into this towards the end. <laughs> the whole beginning part's on spiritual gifts, but the end is on the supernatural worldview of the Bible. If you would like that, I have plenty of free codes. You can download it on Audible. Just ask me for it. Uh, if you want a Kent or a PDF of that, too, I can give that to you. I also have the shorter version, which gets into everything that I got into tonight. I have one paperback left of that. If you want it, you can just have it. And then I have PDFs of that as well. So, all right, let me pray for you. God, we just thank you. Uh, We thank you that when we look at the stories of all the false gods and how evil and corrupt they become, that you are the one source of all power and authority and that you have all the power and authority in the entire cosmos. And yet somehow you are a loving God who cares so much for his children that you would send us yourself, that you would put on human flesh and be known to us as Jesus and then allow us to murder you on a cross just that you might redeem us. A lot of people have this view of you as an angry, vengeful God Yet today in this learning, we've just seen that you want to remove all evil and make the world right, but you're so passionately loving about it that you would be willing to put yourself on the line to make that clear. So we thank you for who you are, and we worship you all the more because of it. In Jesus' name, amen.